0: Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 10, but this is really a sermon on verses 11 through 13. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 in particular. This is a sermon, as you've probably guessed, on contentment, on contentment. Friends, we need contentment. We need contentment that comes from the Lord. I want to start by telling you a sad story. Can we start on a sad note? We start on a sad note, a story of finding contentment in the Lord. It starts on November 15th, 1873 in New York City. A lady named Anna and her four daughters were departing to go to England. They were going to help with D.L. Moody's evangelistic campaign in the United Kingdom. Through unfortunate circumstances, Anna's husband was delayed and could not make the transatlantic voyage with them. He set up for them to be cared for, to be watched over on the journey. He was going to finish up some business here in Chicago and then meet them in England. Six days into their transatlantic journey, Anna told her friend that it seemed impossible to her to cross such an immense ocean without facing peril or danger. Sadly and unfortunately, Anna's words were like a prophecy that came true. They came true that very night. At 2 a.m. in the morning, a boat struck Anna and her family's boat. The ship quickly took on water, and within minutes, it was breaking apart, and it was sinking. Anna clung to her little daughter, Tanetta, the youngest, who was three years old, and looked for her other three daughters, Anna, Maggie, and Bessie. You know what happens when a ship sinks. I think we've all seen that movie, The Titanic. As it goes down, it creates a pull, which creates a vortex, a whirlpool, with currents that are oh so strong. Try as she might, little Anna could could not hold on to her little daughter, Tanetta. The currents ripped her out of her arms, and she never saw Tanetta again. The other two daughters, Maggie and Bessie, were almost saved. The man was able to get them out of the water and start swimming towards a lifeboat but as he approached the lifeboat both the girls lost their grip probably from exhaustion probably from the cold and unfortunately they joined their sister Tanetta in the depths of the ocean no one knows what happened to Maggie after the ship or Annie after the ship broke apart as Anna was pulled from the water she learned of the loss of all four of her daughters at first She was understandably despondent and inconsolable. But after a few minutes, she calmed herself. She gathered herself. She thought to herself about her God, and then she said these words, God gave me my four little daughters. It is he who has taken them from me. He will make me understand and accept his will. How could Anna have a response like that? And what about her husband? Has anybody figured out who her husband is? Horatio Spafford, the author of the hymn, It Is Well. As he sailed over just a couple days later, hearing about the tragedy, he sailed to meet his grieving wife in England. As he passed the spot near where he lost his daughters, he was inspired and he wrote these words. You can say them with me. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen, amen. How? (laughs) How? How in the midst of such pain, such sorrow, such emotional rawness could the Spaffords have a response like that? How do you get contentment like that when you're down like that, right? We need that. We want that. We understand intuitively, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're a cynic, yeah, that's power. And I need that power in my life. How do I get that? That's what our text is about today. I mean, listen to these words of contentment, right? Whatever my lot, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. Hear now from God's word, Philippians chapter 4, reading verse 10 and going on through 13. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, Grace Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. He is going to speak to us through this. He's going to open us up through us. And, And here's what we're going to study. Here's what we're going to learn today. Here's where we are going. First, we need to see as we unpack this text, we need to see the danger of discontentment. We need to see the danger of discontentment, and then we need to see the scope of true contentment. Danger of discontentment, scope of true contentment, and then we need to see the strength that feeds and fuels true contentment. That's where we're going. Let's look at the danger of discontentment. Let's go to the text. Let's go to the first part of verse 11. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking of need. Not that I'm speaking from need. Stop right there. What is Paul doing? You've got to understand verse 10 if you're going to understand verse 11. Let's pull up verse 10. You see, in verse 10, Paul has just thanked the Philippians for receiving a financial gift from them. Paul, as you probably know, probably aware, he's been in jail. He's still in jail. He's got to pay for his legal fees. He's got to pay for his room and board. He's got to pay for his food. They don't give him bread and water in a Roman prison. Paul is at the mercy of other people. He needs help. The Philippians have sent help, and you can actually read verse 10. Some scholars, some commentaries read verse 10, and this is what they hear Paul saying. They hear Paul being snarky, saying something like this, "Hey, Philippians, thanks for finally getting around to sending some support. Not like I haven't been in jail or anything. Do you see how those words can read like a backhanded compliment? Paul wants to steer clear of that. He wants to make sure that the Philippians know he is not discontent with them, he is not discontent with the circumstances. And so in verse 11, he makes it sure, "I'm not writing from need. I'm not writing from want." and then he launches into these words that are among the most famous in all of Scripture. Why? Why does Paul go on this tangent? Why does he break from thanking them for their generosity to giving a little mini-sermon on contentment? He knows that discontentment has racked the hearts of the Philippian church. He knows that it's causing sorrow and division. It's causing strife. And he doesn't want to add to it like, great, the outside world's against us. We're against each other. We're fighting each other. And now Paul is beating up on us too. Paul knows that discontentment is a breeding ground for danger. We need to learn that lesson too. When we are discontent, we are in danger. Let me show you. Let me show you just a couple ways, right? Let's go four. There's more, but let's go four ways that you are in danger when you are discontent. The first would be this. We'll put them up on the slides. There you go. It eats at your soul, and it eats at your relationships. A second way you're in danger when you're discontent is this. It colors the way you view people and events. It also leaves you continuously looking for more. You're never satisfied. You you, you take one step, you think you're full, but it doesn't work. It doesn't ultimately fulfill you. So what do you do? You take another step, and now you're on a search for more and more and more, and it never ends. You're never filled. The fourth and final way that it is a danger is this. It leaves you with a busted moral compass. It leaves you with a busted moral compass. Let me illustrate this. Some of these seem obvious, but let me illustrate this. Let's unpack extramarital affairs. One of the worst things we can do to another human being is be unfaithful. Let's let's see how discontentment fuels this. Did you know, did you know that 99% of all people who have been unfaithful would say this? I never thought I was capable of this. How? How did they get to that point, right? Well, it starts with discontentment. Something happens in a marriage, something is off, there's a sharp spike in stress or a sudden life change. There's unresolved miscommunication, there's unresolved issues, and that becomes a breeding ground for discontentment right? Like that's number one. It starts to eat at your relationships. And as it eats at the relationship, it's like acid. It doesn't stop with where it's dropped. It spreads out. It's like venom pulsing through your your veins and your arteries, right? It starts to destroy other things. You don't just stop it. I'm discontent with the intimacy. I'm not getting them right? Like it bleeds over, it spills over, and now you're discontent with the way they're, they're using money. You're discontent with what they're doing or not doing around the home, right? It starts to get to a point where that other person can never do anything right. Do you see number one at play, right? Number one is at play. Number two is now in play. And then what happens? Now you're vulnerable. Now you're vulnerable to make little micro compromises, right? Like when you're discontent, when you're unhappy, when you're unsettled in your marriage relationship, what happens? Now you'll make, wow, that person complimented me. That other person complimented me. Felt kind of nice. I'm not getting that over here. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing harmful with that, right? I'm feeling weird. What's going on, right? That's not weird. I'm mature. I can handle that, right? And then it turns into, I don't know maybe a like on a Facebook or an Instagram post, they start to like back, starts to build to maybe maybe a comment, maybe a barb back and forth. Like, we're mature, we're adults, we're supposed to be able to do that, right? That's harmless, there's nothing wrong. See how it starts to progress? The inside jokes, the banter, start to build. And the next thing you know, in your text inbox, your email inbox, your messenger inbox, there's a private message. Adults can handle that, right? What's wrong with that? That progresses to, well, what's wrong with getting coffee? People do that all the time. We should be mature, we should not be jealous. Do you see how it progresses? Do you see how number three plays out? It just keeps going as you're trying to fill that void in your heart. And the next thing you know, you're rationalizing bigger things, worse things. Your compass, your, excuse me, your, your, your moral compass is off. It's not looking at true north anymore. If it feels right, it must be true. That's the spirit of our day, right? Do you see how this plays out? Next thing you know, you're rationalizing behaviors that you never thought you were capable of. And that's just marriage, right? Like I'm not trying to beat up on that one example, Right, like That's just one illustration of where discontentment can take us and why it is a danger. In fact, let's go to number four. Let's unpack number four, the busted moral compass. You see this as a pastor. You probably see this in your friends and in your family so much. How much do we confuse I'm right? Really, how much do we confuse I'm right with I'm just discontent? How much is it just discontent? feels right really a search for contentment right like we, how many times should we stop and ask ourselves am i right or am i just discontent i don't like that friend they've hurt me i'm gonna friend hop are you right or are you discontent i don't like my spouse they hurt me they're not delivering the needs they promised they would i have rights i have needs are you right or are you discontent we career hop why are we right well sometimes yeah But sometimes, are we just discontent? Talking with other pastors this week, a phenomenon we've been spared from so far is this. A lot of pastors around us are experiencing the phenomenon of church hopping, right? Are you right? Or are you just discontent? And when we don't stay in the friendship, the relationship, we lose out on so many valuable lessons, right? Look at what we lose when we hop around and we just replace people and organizations when we're discontent. There's lessons we don't learn in forgiveness. There's lessons we don't learn in mercy, in reconciliation, and growing in endurance and seeing something through the other side and then seeing what the Lord was doing all along. How many times when we're discontent is the Lord really just trying to say, I'm growing you. I'm teaching you something new. It's hard. It's like lifting weights for the first time. You're sore the next couple of days. It is uncomfortable. Growth and change are uncomfortable, but I'm bringing you more in alignment with what I want and who I am, right? We, we don't learn that lesson And then we start to become a people who are hypersensitive to our feelings. Our feelings master us. Oh, friends, oh, friends, we have to be aware of the danger of discontentment. How do we redeem discontentment? How do we redeem it? It is redeemable. Like, it's not more powerful than our God, right? How do we redeem discontentment? Here's how. Did you know it's going to sound counterintuitive. Did you know that discontentment can actually be a great gift? That sounds so counterintuitive. It's like, what? Get him out of the pulpit, right? Get somebody else. No, 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 no. Discontentment through the right perspective can be a great gift. It is a gift when you ask, how is the Lord using this discontentment to wake me up? I'm discontent. I'm not supposed to be. What is the Lord trying to show me? How is he trying to grab my attention, right? Like, let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit more, right? We are all born with a hole in our hearts that is the size of eternity. We're born with this hole. And our main problem is this. It's not that we try to put the wrong peg in the right hole. It's not like another woman, another job, another promotion, another sale, another church, another friend... No, it's not that we're putting the wrong peg into the wrong hole, a square peg into a round hole. It's we're putting a peg that is way too small into a hole that is way too large. When we fill ourselves up on this world, it's like trying to put a one-inch square peg into a hole the size of the Milky Way. We have eternity in our hearts, and only when we find eternity will we be able to rest only then will we be truly satisfied, right? Like, think about it. We need an infinite love. When spouses fight, they're not wrong to want love. They're not wrong to want intimacy. They're not wrong to want warmth. They're not wrong to want closeness. You're not wrong. Your spouse isn't wrong. We want those things. We're hardwired for these things. We were made for those things. But we need an infinite, sized, and eternal-shaped peg. We're looking for it in the wrong Places Our God allows us to feel our discontentment because it points us to our need for Him. Our God allows us to feel discontentment because it points us to our need for Him. The wise man, the scholar, C.S. Lewis, the popular author, once said this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is this. I was made for another world. Grace, where are you fretful? Where are you resentful? Where are you unsettled? Where are you restless? These are all signs that the God of the universe is knocking on the door of our hearts, calling us to look upward to him and not horizontally to other people or other things. We really need to see the danger of discontentment. What's the antidote? What's the antidote? The antidote's there in the text, right? The antidote is an infinite, eternal source of contentment that speaks to all aspects of our life. We need to see the scope of true contentment. That's what Paul gives us next. That's our next point. We need to see the scope of true contentment. There's the antidote, right? Like, look at verse 11. Look at verse 12. Look at what Paul says here. He says, I've learned in whatever situation... He says in any and every circumstance in all of life, I can be high, I can can abound, I, I can be low, I can be humbled, I can be brought low. When there's plenty, when there's lack, I can be content. There's a contentment that is available to you in Jesus Christ that really meets you where you're at and it covers the whole scope of life, right? It's there in the lows, it's there in the highs. Let's start with the lows. Let's start with the lows. Let's think about this. Let's think about this, right? Like, in the lows, in the lows, you know, I think it's obvious to say that we need contentment when tragedy strikes. We need contentment when we're in the doldrums. We need contentment, right, when, when life has knocked us on our back. I mean, when we're waiting on a medical diagnosis, when we're not getting along, when we're unsure where the next paycheck is coming from, it's a captain obvious statement to say that we need contentment, right? Like, we all intuitively get, That contentment is like stabilizers on an airplane. It's like a rudder on a ship. It's like anti-lock brakes on a car. It stabilizes you. It keeps you moving forward and in a safe direction, right? But what we don't always understand, what we don't always know, is that there is a well of contentment that is deeper than our problems. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you the story of Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was a bishop who lived in England in the 1500s. He was an advocate. Yeah, I see Derek Buckley like, yeah. (laughs) Love you, buddy. Yeah, he was a bishop in England in the 1500s. He was a reformer bringing the Reformation to England. He wanted more of God's word, more of God's truth, more of his Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, right? He wants to preach that. He wants people to know that. Well, when a Catholic queen comes to power, he and his friend, Nicholas Ridley, are sentenced to death, and their method of death is to be burned at the stake. On the morning when the logs were piled up high, the kindling was set and the stake was put in the middle, Hugh Latimer turned to his buddy Nicholas Ridley and he said these words, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. Wish I could do it with a British accent. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day by God's grace light such a candle in England as shall never be put out. And sure enough, after his death, the great truths, the great biblical truths of the Reformation spread throughout all of the island of England. I want to go like that, right? That's finding contentment in the lows. That's what Jesus Christ holds out to you. And that's just the lows. That's just the lows. What about the highs? I mean, it sounds, it sounds counterintuitive to say, I need contentment despite the highs, right? Like we tend to draw contentment and satisfaction from the highs, but it doesn't work. Not only, not only are those highs fleeting and temporary, but guess what? The highs can actually be a source of discontentment. Yes, the highs in our life can be a source of discontentment and then you're right back at the dangers. What do I mean? Let me illustrate it this way. There's a lady named Cynthia Heimel who used to write for a magazine called Village Voice. She had the privilege, I guess the honor, of knowing three celebrities before they made it and became famous and got big, and then after they made it, right? You can go Google her name, Cynthia Heimel, and you can learn who the three actors are. You know them. Here's what she wrote about them. This is, as she observed their life and the change in their life when they became famous, hear her words here. She said, if they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now, because that giant thing they were striving for that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and ha-ha happiness. It had happened. And guess what? Nothing had changed. They were still themselves. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. It's not that fame and money are bad. It's that when it comes to fulfillment, when it comes to contentment, they are an illusion. All that's happening when a celebrity, when a powerful person, when a rich person pulls up with 20 trucks full of asphalt to cover the pothole in their heart, they're throwing a larger pile of asphalt, but the hole is still the size of eternity. It won't work. It won't work. It only breeds more discontentment. This is the beauty of Christianity. This is why you should become a Christian. There is contentment available to you in the highs. There is contentment available to you in the lows. And guess what? If we cover the highs, if we cover the lows, then that means it's there for you everywhere in between. It's a practical faith where the rubber meets the road. Think about it this way. Are you fretful? Do you walk around lacking joy with internal unrest? Do you feel like there's something more that you need in life, right? It, it, are you jaded? Are you cynical about our future, your future, the future of this country? I don't care if you're a Republican. don't care if you're a Democrat. You don't like the other side right now. We're so polarized, and it breeds fear. It breeds discontentment. Are you walking around every time you see the news, and now you're down, right? Like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Are you dissatisfied with the rat race? Where, am I, where are my housewives at? I'm sorry, where are my stay-at-home moms at? Is minivan life dissatisfying? The rat race, are you discontent with it? Come on, this is the stuff of everyday life. We're not talking about the highs or the lows anymore. What about work? Are you discontent? Can you never find a right fit with work? Whether you're the boss, whether you're the employee, Right? We need contentment where the rubber meets the road and Christianity offers that to you and it offers that to you today. Do you hear Paul saying in verse 11 and verse 12, you have a deep abiding real contentment in this life and it's one that nourishes your soul in the highs and the lows and in the everyday rat race of life. That is something this world simply cannot offer. But good news, it's something that this world cannot take away oh there's beauty when we think about the danger of discontentment when we see the scope of true contentment we're just left to ask a final question how do I get that (laughs) right I want that how do I get it well to get it we go to verse 13 we need to see the strength that is available to us and we need to see the strength that fuels our contentment all friends look at verse 13 famous words right Like, how many of you like sports? Raise your hand. How many of you have something autographed by one of your your favorite athletes? Odds are, if there's a Bible verse on it, it's Philippians 4:13. I can do, I can dunk that ball through Christ who strengthens me. I can knock that ball out of the park. I can finally draft an offensive line, a running back, a team. Hello, Bears, right? Through Christ who strengthens me? That's not what Paul's getting at. That's not what Paul's getting at. Paul says he can do all things. He says he has the strength to do whatever God has called him to do. He has the strength to face whatever God has called him to face in this life. Paul is not a man who is undone by the lows, but he's not a man who's overly exuberant and addicted to the highs. Why? Because he knows where true contentment comes from, and he knows that true contentment Contentment comes from the Lord. His final joy, his final satisfaction, his final contentment does not come from the things on this earth. No, it comes from the Lord. Just like Horatio and Anna Spafford losing their children, just like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley on their way to the burning stake. There is contentment when there is strength in the Lord. That right there, God's own strength, is the secret to true. Contentment. True contentment comes when you trust that God has given you the strength to face whatever he's called you to. True contentment comes when you can actually rest on his sufficiency to keep turning you into the person he's called you to be. True contentment comes when you realize he has been for you, he is for you, he will be for you, he has worked in you, he has worked around you, he is working in you, he is working around you, and he will continue to work in you, and he will continue to work around you. He is for you, and when you rest in that, when you rest in that, you can move forward, not in your own strength, but in his strength that he supplies And when you have that strength, what do you become? You become quietly confident, not boisterous and arrogant. You become quietly confident. You become settled. You become grounded. And when you have that groundedness, that settlement in the Lord that cannot be taken away, how can you not have some kind of peace, some kind of contentment, regardless of the circumstances that you are facing? That's where true contentment comes from. Now, let's make this practical. Let's make this practical. When you have the strength of the Lord that fuels your contentment, look at what it does for your life. Let's look at just three ways that strength liberates you. It frees you. First, it strengthens you, and it frees you to be a good friend. It strengthens you, and it liberates you to be a good friend. Why? Because your true contentment does not come. Your true strength, your true security does not come from what other people think of you, what other people are or are not doing for you. And so you, you can live free without worrying about getting something back from them in return. That right there makes you a better friend. It protects you. It protects you from making friendships based on how useful someone is to you, what they're going to give you in return, and it gives you the freedom and the strength to be open with them. makes you a good friend. What else does that strength and that contentment do for you? It does this. If it makes you a good friend, it frees you from covetousness. Remember our assurance? Remember our confession? Covetousness? Remember the 10th commandment? Oh, strength in the Lord, contentment in the Lord frees you from coveting other things. How? because you grasp your contentment, your strength, your security does not come from stuff. It does not come from vacations. It does not come from a paycheck. It does not come from a cool experience. It does not come from living vicariously through that Instagram influencer. It does not come from living vicariously through that movie. It does not come vicariously from living through a fantasy land. No, you can live free. You can live free without worrying about keeping up with the Joneses. And that right there protects you. It protects you from feeling like you have to live up to other people's expectations. And it frees you when you fail to meet your own standards and your own expectations. It frees you to be a good friend. It frees you from covetousness. And the third thing that it frees you from is this. It frees you from emptiness. How many people walk around today feeling hollow? Like authenticity, relevant, has been a buzzword in the church that just needs to die a gruesome death. Why? Why do people need authenticity and relevance? Because we're empty, right? We just want to feel. Talk to a teenager, right? We just want to feel something. We want to feel alive because we feel empty. Contentment in the Lord, strength in the Lord, frees you from that how? Because your security does not come from the things in this world. No. You are filled instead with heaven on high, and that frees you from having to live for the bottle, live for the needle, live with eating disorders, live with obsessive-compulsive exercising, living with giving yourself away in toxic relationships, or giving yourself over to the throes of lust. Oh, it protects you. It protects you from abuse and manipulation. Whether you're the one abusing and manipulating or you're the one being abused and being manipulated. It frees you. Do you see the beauty in this? Do you see the goodness in this? Do you see why you should become a Christian, right? Like today's the day, right? Here's the thing. This is such a critique to our modern notions of contentment. Right, like let's let's kick the legs out from under the table. Where do people try to find contentment? How do they define contentment today? Some people define it these two ways. They think of contentment as carefree existence with perfect work-life balance and no relational strife, no anguish whatsoever. That doesn't work. Why? It's not real. We live in a fallen world. Those things are going to happen. We're not going to get it perfect. We need a contentment that, that that exists where the rubber meets the road, not pie in the sky. Right? How else do people look for contentment? Right? Like you can go New agey, right? You can go Eastern religion. Right? Contentment will come as I find my Zen, Buddhist, Nirvana, and I am detached. I passively accept whatever comes my way. And I succumb to a fatalistic determinism, right? That doesn't work. Christianity calls you to engage with the world, not to draw away, right? Like, we've got to be engaged in the world. We want to be engaged in the world. We should feel it when something's wrong. We should feel it when something's right. We should not be detached and emotionless. No, that sucks the humanity out of our souls. It doesn't work. Here's a third and final way that people try to define or look for contentment in secular society. It's a word that's usually a good word. It's independence. It's independence. Independence. Some people try to find contentment in financial independence, right? Like if I just had financial independence, then I'd have it made, right? That's looking for contentment. But look at Paul in our passage, right? He's received a gift. He's dependent upon the Philippians for money. He has to fundraise just to put food on the table. He's financially dependent, but he is content. How do other people define independence? They define it physically or politically, right? Like think of all the activism today. Right? I'm not trying to pick on a certain community, but especially if you know people in the LGBTQ community, they're never content. Why? They want political freedom. They want physical freedom. They want independence. But look at Paul. Look at Paul. He's a man in jail. He doesn't know if he's going to be beaten, tortured, or executed. He has no physical independence. He has no political independence. He's at the mercy of someone else, yet he is content. Look at who he's writing to. He's writing to the Roman colony at Philippi. He's writing to people who are slaves and caught in a patronage system. That means even if they're free, they owe somebody something. They're not politically free. They're not physically free. No, but Paul calls them to be content regardless. Contentment will not be found in independence unless we're talking about spiritual independence from this world. That is a spiritual dependence on the Lord. Oh, friends, it's such a critique of modern notions of contentment. True contentment comes from the Lord's strength. It does not come from our circumstances, no. But we still have a question, right? How do I get it? (laughs) How do I get strength in the Lord? Oh, friends, we've got to rehearse the gospel. We've got to rehearse the gospel. How could Paul, go to verse 12, go to verse 12. How could Paul say, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. It's because Paul knew the man who was brought low for him so that he may eternally abound. Paul knew Jesus Christ and Jesus is the God who lowered himself for you in becoming a man and then lowering himself even further at the cross. And why did he lower himself for you? So that by faith in him, you could rise with him and know life eternally. you can abound. abound. Grace, a great way to draw strength from the Lord is to rehearse the gospel to yourself. In fact, let's make this practical, right? Let's put some skin on the bones. Let's put some meat on the bones. Let's go to our beloved catechism. Let's go to the Heidelberg catechism. Yeah, come on. What question and answer? Yeah, number one, number one, just do this. Rehearse this when you catch yourself being fretful, worried, discontent, right? Like, like ask, what is my only comfort in life and death? Don't answer it yet. Understand that what you're really asking of the Lord in that moment is, what is my only source of true contentment? And as you read the answer, that I am not my own, say it with me, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Reflect on this, reflect in this way. My contentment flows from this. Not that I belong to a spouse, not that I belong to a family, not that I belong to a certain trade or vocation or have a certain career, but to him and to him alone. And I belong to him in the now, but I also belong to him beyond the grave. I have his infinite and eternal love and it watches over me. Let's say the next part. Say it with me. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Look at what he did for me so that I would belong to him. Reflect on this. Look what he did for me. God shed his blood for me. He loved me so much, he bled for me, and he's God. Like that moves the needle, right? Like he's God, and he bled for me. He must love me something fierce. He must love me stronger than a hurricane's winds. And look at who cannot separate me from that love, not even the devil himself. And then you continue. Read these words. He also preserves me in such a way That without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Oh, tell yourself, look at his love for me. I have his eternal and infinite power keeping me. My hairs, yes, mine, needed permission to even fall out. If the hairs on my head even needed that permission, how many other things need God's permission before they can act upon my life? Oh, I have strength. I have his strength. When you grasp that, when you rehearse gospel truth, you can say that final line with conviction. Say it with me. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him in contentment, in his strength. That right there refreshes you. It refreshes you in his sufficiency. It refreshes you in his strength. And when you have that, you will have true contentment. And when you have true contentment, you will be protected from the dangers of discontentment. Amen? Let's celebrate that as we come to this table. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you now, Father, we're grateful. Father, we're grateful that you have given us your divine source of eternal and infinite contentment. Father, we need it. Oh, how we need it, Father. But Father, you supply it and you supply us these visible signs, these everyday, ordinary elements that are representative of a supernatural truth. You grow us in grace and therefore you grow us in contentment. Father, we love you. And we praise you and ask that you would work this in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to the table, we want to make clear of a couple things. As we come to this table, we want you to know that you are strengthened in grace. Like, we do not believe that this is going to, like, transform into Christ's blood and his physical body as it travels down your esophagus. No, that's not what we're saying. That's not why we hold the Lord's table in such high esteem. That's not why we dress up a little bit for this occasion. No. But we're also not saying that this is just some symbolic act. This do in remembrance of me is not a call of symbolism. No, there's something real that happens, There's something more than nothing that happens, but it's not a physical something. Do you see that? It's a spiritual something. It's a spiritual nourishment. Your faith is like an umbilical cord connecting you to Jesus Christ, and his grace strengthens you. He nourishes you as we come and as we feed on these signs and seals of the covenant of grace. When we encounter this, when we encounter his love, when we remember He was broken for us spear shoved in his side nails in his hand when we remember God bled for you how can you not be changed how can you not grow in grace now another word we need to give something that's not super politically correct is this if you are here and you are a Christian if you are a Christian who has professed faith in Jesus if you are a member of a Bible believing gospel preaching church this is your table Right? Like the good news is, this is not a Presbyterian table. This is not a Reform table. This is not a Baptist table, Methodist table, Episcopalian table. This is not a non denominational table, nor is it an interdenominational table. It is the table of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you do not belong to Jesus Christ, could I ask you, let these elements pass over you? Let these elements pass over you. First Corinthians chapter 11 says that we could drink judgment onto ourselves rather we're going to ask you to sit there and pray, to reflect, to call the little ones around you to pray and reflect and see if today might not be the day that they come to faith in Jesus, meet with the elders, and then are admitted to his table. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, how we need you. Father God, we praise you. Father God, you are so good. You are so kind to us, Father. Father God, Please strengthen us, Father. You have promised that, Father. Please help us to know the strengthening, to see it played out. Oh, Father, we love you and we praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.